you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 63 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. And myself, Mark Tottenham Barrister and editor of Decisis Law Reports. Mark, good to see you as always. And last week we had a really interesting discussion about the controversial Northern Ireland Troubles Legacy Act with well-known Belfast human rights solicitor Dara Macken. Fascinating insight into some of his human rights cases in the North. And he's been involved in loads of stuff. Like, for example, he told us about the Hooded Man. Fascinating interview. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, there's the the case coming up before the Court of Human Rights between Ireland and the UK. So that yeah, yeah. no, it's great. And uh, no, but he explained that really, really well. I thought that was a fascinating interview. If you missed it, folks, listen back to it. It is really, really, really interesting. Okay. Well, today we are delighted to welcome to the studio Dr. Deirdre McGowan, senior lecturer in law in TUD Dublin, and Dr. Maeve Harding, who's a senior lecturer from UCD in family law, and they're going to discuss their new book, Family Law in Context, which is a cutting edge book in terms of all the latest developments in family law. And it's it's kind of like a really, really good textbook where they explain in great detail all the various different aspects of family law. It really is a cracker of a book. And we're also going to take advantage of the fact of having two such eminent family law academics in the house, Mark, to discuss the forthcoming referenda which our dear citizenship are going to get the opportunity to vote upon. Yeah, so the definition of the family is going to be revised if this goes through. And then the women's place in the home is going to be... uh, So it'll be very interesting to hear what these two two women have to say about that. I'm really looking forward to it. And it's obviously very important. Mm. And we hope people will listen to our show and then go out and vote because it's really important that people vote in these referenda. But first, we're going to look at three cases from the CISA's website that you have identified. The first case this week concerns the wording of a will. The deceased appointed her husband as executor and two of her sons as alternate executors if he was unable or unwilling to act. Her husband died shortly after her and a daughter applied to the court to be appointed administrator. So what did the court find in relation to these alternate executors, Mark? Yeah, this is just, a, it's a peculiar case. This is a Ray Dooley deceased. It's a decision of Miss Justice Stack on the 2nd of February. It's a case that mightn't have you, you you mightn't have expected it to go the way that it did because the as as you said the deceased named her husband as executor. She said that her two sons should be the alternate executors if he was unable or unwilling to act. An issue then arose, but where her her daughter obviously had a, an issue with her her brothers being appointed, and what was Justice Stack said was that 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 unable and unwilling did not apply where the husband had died. So because he had died. This fell outside his being unable or unwilling to act, um, whereas if they had said in default of the husband being uh, able to act, the the two brothers would, would be able to act, then they would automatically have been executors. So the the phrase unwilling or unable or unwilling did not apply where he died after her and before the grant of probate. Okay, Mark. Okay, very well explained. Let's move to our second case, and this concerns an apple farmer who sought damages from his neighbour, claiming that the, his apples had been damaged by the other farmer spraying some pesticide. And he was looking for quite a few bob for his crop of apples, Mark. Yeah, so this is North Dublin. There was a, an apple farmer who was uh, situated beside a potato farm. 
This is the case of John Donnelly and Sons and Hoey. It's a decision of Mr. Justice Barr in the High Court. And basically what happened here was the, the potato farmer sprayed pesticide over the potatoes. And it turns out that he did that on a day when the wind was blowing towards the apple farm with the result that the apple crop effectively got destroyed or certainly a substantial portion of it did. And it could specifically be shown that the sides of the apples that were damaged were the ones that the pesticide had, had blown into. It took a long time for the matter to come onto hearing because this happened back in 2011. And what the court said was, it was. It's effectively. It's Hanrahan and Mark Sharp and Doe. Well, it case. does, and it's, but it's you also know? a Rylands and Fletcher Rylands issue. Rylands and Fletcher. So if you, yeah, take, yeah, if you yeah, bring yeah. something onto your property that's likely to cause damage if it escapes, then you are liable for any escape. But what he specifically said here was that if the pesticide had been used in a domestic setting, it probably wouldn't have given rise to any claim. But because this was done on a sort of industrial scale then um, the, the, the plaintiff was entitled to succeed. Okay, very good, Mark. Very interesting case. Okay, finally, case number three. The owner of a passive solar house, a passive solar house as opposed to a, an angry solar house or a, um, a kind of a, a non-passive solar house, whatever that means, you're going to have to explain that, had challenged an application for a development that might overshadow his house. Ah, so no sunshine. Then sought to challenge the planning permission by way of judicial review. So this is the case of Murphy versus on board Planala. Ain't no sunshine when she... Yeah, so you are right... When she's gone. <laughs> you are right to query what a passive solar house was because that seems to have uh, confused various other parties in the case because there was an assumption that solar panels were involved. But in fact, apparently a passive solar house is one where the, I think the windows are faced in such a way that you take maximum possible benefit from the sunshine or from the, from the south-facing windows, I suppose. Um, and so this means that the house is kept as warm as possible by the by, by by natural sunshine rather than any other heating system. Anyway, the the point, as you said, was that he um, that he he challenged the, the the development, the neighbouring development that would have overshadowed the house. But one of the particular issues here was that he held himself out as being an expert in his own case, and the court and the court was Justice Bolger in this case was very unimpressed so by that. She said, he, well, he, he just he, owned he, the house. He, he might be an expert, landlord. but he has skin in the game and so he's okay. not an independent expert. Okay, very good. Okay, back shortly with Deirdre McGowan and Maeve Harding. Silence in the fifth court. Okay, so it is my great pleasure to welcome to the studio Deirdre McGowan, who's a lecturer in law in the TU Dublin and also Maeve Harding, who's a lecturer in law in UCD. And the two of you together have combined to produce this absolutely fantastic book on family law, Family Law in Context. And you also had the help of a few other contributors as well. But it is, the, it is such a wonderful book. Now, I don't practice in family law, but I do sort of every now and again have to dip into family law for various different parts of my practice. And I just thought it was really, really good. Tell us about the book, Deirdre. So you have various different contributors and you put this... Wonderful work together. Yeah, so we have 10 contributors, including ourselves. So that's us and eight other people. And we've together uh, written a collaborative textbook on family law. And um, so we we started off, myself and Maeve had a little chat at the Irish Association of Law Teachers. Yes. Um, yes, where we bemoaned the lack of a really good family law textbook. And so we said, let's, well, Maeve said, let's write one, I think. I'm going to blame Maeve. Yeah, I had recently returned from England where I had, uh, where I had taught uh, English family law for a number of years, where there's a much bigger textbook market and there are many different types of textbooks and they're more 
student-focused textbooks and the Irish textbook market is quite a different thing. So it is harder to have the same range of dynamic textbooks here. But I, I was also struggling to find something that was accessible to the students, that was engaging, and that encouraged them to think critically about family law, what it is and what it's for and what it means about our country and our society. So it is very much a textbook and, and the yes. way it's designed. I mean, you set out at the start of each chapter, kind of a, a chart of what you're trying to achieve and, you know, what people should take away from the chapter yeah. and all that sort of stuff. So yeah. it is really with the student in mind. Yes. But it's also very good for the practitioner as well, I would have thought. Yeah, I mean, that was part of the deal. So we did, we asked people, so we had a little workshop and we invited the contributors along and we sort of agreed a format and we kind of talked about what would make this best and most accessible. So that's why we have at the beginning, like learning outcomes. And then at the end, we have questions you might ask or critical questions. And then we have further reading. Uh, so what we're doing is at the beginning of each chapter sets out really clearly and simply what the law is. And then it gets into discussion later on in the chapter, whereas often in books that's kind of mixed together. So we felt for kind of the busy practitioner. So, you know, often practitioners, family law comes into everything in practice. I think people don't really realise that. But particularly if you're working Absolutely in general does. practice, it's everywhere. And so the practitioner may not have time to, you know, or just may need to know something. And so it's there. It's easy to find. No, it's easily accessible. Absol absolutely. Now, both of you are very eminent family law academics. So how did you recruit the rest of the people? Are they all similarly working in various different uh, university departments? The 10 other contributors? Well, are they all family law people? Eight others. Well, we did, eight eight others. Eight others. They're sorry. all very eminent. All very we eminent. did start off with a few more who, due to various uh, family law in context life circumstances, uh, did not quite make it to the final edition, but we hope to include them in future editions. So our criteria was for people who were researchers, so actively researching in the area of law and also had experience of teaching the law at, at university or higher education level because there's, there's a skill in researching, but there's also a skill in teaching and being able to explain concepts accessibly to people and bringing them from a state of no knowledge to a state of having critical views and opinions uh, about an area of law and knowing where to find out accurate information about that area of law. I love this. I love this. I mean, a, a lot of times we look at academics in third level institutions and they can go off into a room and write these wonderful academic tomes and they're brilliant and we love that. But you guys are very much focused on the notion of teaching students and of people learning and the fact that it is primarily an educational institution and, you know, where you work and therefore what you produce must be of assistance to students. And society in general. I mean, we can see from the referendum that there is an, there's an issue of family law literacy and how people understand the law and how it plays a role in their lives. So we wanted this to be something that was accessible to students, to all students, so that it would be a good entry level if you'd never heard about the topic before, explain things simply, use accurate concepts. The sort of words we used, we had a chat about that as well because we felt the language of family law was quite dated. So we, we had a discussion about that. But also through the book, then it brings people up to where they're getting their information from. What are the critical questions in each area of law? Where can they find cutting edge research about that? Who's done the research? Where is it? Where can you find it? And then if they want to go further, it kind of leads them to where they might go to uh, discuss critical questions about that area of law in further detail, reading, you know, the leading journals or yeah, pieces great. of research so it's, about it's it. It's all there for people who want to get further into it. Yeah. So Deirdre, you kind of focused on kind of family law and marriage and, you know, nullity and that sort of stuff. I see a couple of chapters yeah. of that nature that you wrote about. So what's new under the sun in relation to marriage and nullity? We had we had a wonderful episode here where we talked about a nullity case going back oh, to the nineteen forties. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I did listen you know, to that one. So uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um but anyway, so what's new under the sun? Well, I suppose in in a kind of my area, I mean the we won't mention the referendum yet, but no, I mean, that's kind of, we'll get to that, <laughs> get to that later. But that's very front and center of my area. And uh, so that was part of the, when we first had the conversation about 
the book, I was like, yeah, I mean, I can write the marriage stuff, but I don't know anything about the children. Um, so this is very much my area is the kind yes. of the marriage, the adults, the adult relationships. Um, and so what's new in this area, I suppose there's just been a shift over time from, so you mentioned I wrote the knowledge chapter uh, and family law, you have to teach knowledge and it's a big part of it. But actually, it's a, actually a really tiny part of family law. It's really good for helping you understand, you know, the meaning of marriage and what what the implications are of it. But actually, very few people are getting nullities anymore. In fact, I mean, the the case law and the meaning of marriage, a lot of it arises in the kind of asylum and immigration area, doesn't it? So, no, you know, where, yes. where people arrive and the question is as to whether a particular marriage can be recognised. And sometimes people come from polygamous societies and the, the, yeah. the, the decision has to be made as to whether a, a, a second marriage can be recognised where the first one hasn't been terminated, that um, kind of thing. Yeah, so I suppose, and this is actually a conversation we had about drawing the line between nullity from the as a marriage law remedy mm. and then determining the validity of marriage in other contexts, which is a slightly different thing. Mm. So the focus in this as a family law textbook is on yeah, the validity of marriage for the purposes of nullity, like right. applying, you know, to dissolve your marriage because the the reason that people may apply for nullity in rather than a divorce or judicial separation is because then there are no, you're not liable for any of the ancillary relief provisions. It, it never existed in the first place, isn't that it? And you, yeah. as you say, you yeah. don't have to pay restitution or pay, you know, well, there, you know maintenance or any of that sort of stuff. So forth, yeah. Will you explain why we have you here, just for listeners who mightn't be familiar with this area of law, will you explain the difference between judicial separation and divorce and how the two of them dovetail? Okay, so in a nutshell, judicial separation suspends a marriage but does not end it. So the people are still spouses. Um, divorce ends a marriage and the people are no longer spouses. So that's it in a nutshell. And one surprising thing, I think you you would imagine, I mean, there are much less applications for judicial separation than there are for divorce, but people still do apply for judicial separations. And I've just done a big review of high court cases in the last 20 years. And a surprising amount of them are for judicial separation. And why would somebody want to go for judicial separation rather than divorce if um, the relationship is broken down? Yeah. So first of all, uh, it's a it's a quicker remedy. Um, so there are fault-based grounds in judicial separation. So you can get a judicial separation pretty much immediately on a fault-based ground. So that would be, uh, you know, unreasonable behaviour or um, adultery. So you can go into the court, whereas for divorce, you must wait for two years before you can make an application. So, we, you know, there's something quite egregious going on and, and, you know, somebody needs a settlement in a hurry. That's a good route to go down. So people do. Um, so that's why it might be attractive. Yeah, OK. Yeah. OK. And the two year period for divorce. I mean, is that something I know it was for originally? Yeah. It's now down to two. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's better. Um, I I think it's probably still too long. Okay. And I think there was a missed opportunity there to make it the same as judicial separation because you can get a judicial separation and no fault grounds after a year. So it was like, why do we still have two remedies? Because now people can still get a judicial separation and then have to go through the whole thing again to get a divorce. So potentially more work to do. Okay, yeah. and Maeve, I noticed you had a, a chapter entitled cohabitation. Oh, that's so right. So no marriage at all. No marriage at all. Yes, I actually gave a lecture on cohabitation today where we have uh, named a lot of the cases. We have the Netflix and Chill case. Mm. We have the uh, various things that happen in it. Yes, so that's about the uh, Cohabitants Act 2010, the Civil Partnership and Cohabitants Act 2010, Part 7. So or it's Part 15, isn't it? Um, so the, yeah, so that's about the uh, economic redress, really, that's available for cohabitants in certain circumstances. But it's not the same as recognising cohabitation as a, as a family form. What it is, is the safety net for certain cohabitants, qualified cohabitants is what the legislation uses, who can apply for certain financial remedies 
when their relationship breaks down or when their partner dies. And it does, does it always require somebody to be financially dependent on the other person or is there, it, is that this is, just one of the... This the, is a very the, good question. So we went, we went through this in some detail in the lecture and they were asking the same questions that the students did. So it's slightly different depending on whether you're trying to get financial remedies from someone who remains alive and therefore has to go and have, you know, go on and have other families and do, do their own things. And whether you're trying to get a financial relief from a, a cohabitant who is dead from the, yeah. the, from the estate of your deceased partner. When you're trying to get the uh, remedy from someone who is still alive, it's a requirement to show financial dependency or financial needs. It's not a requirement to do so if the person is dead, but it is important when the court is assessing whether or not your relationship is committed on how much they will actually award you. So it's relevant for the quantum of the award if the court actually goes that far to make an award. Yeah, and, and what other chapters did you contribute to the book as well? I think we we did a, I did a few. So I yes. did the public law chapter for children, so childcare and child protection proceedings, and also the private law chapter um, with uh, Brian Tobin about the brave new world that is um, a parented parenthood following assisted reproduction technology. We talk yes. about surrogacy. We talk about so guardianship, which which is obviously a big issue at the moment yes. in terms of surrogacy. It's become let's say relatively not prevalent, but I mean, it's happening more and more. And you regularly hear parents very angry about the fact that, you know, their rights in relation to surrogate children and stuff like that isn't, isn't as clear cut as they'd like it to be. Where do you see that going? Well, I mean, there, there's ongoing uh, attempts to legislate for this area of law. I think uh, the war in Ukraine has, has yes. brought the face of surrogacy home and, and actually really humanised some of the stories that are behind this. When You know, you see Rosanna Davison with the surrogate mother of her children and you see that they are people and they've arranged to do this to bring children into the world. Um, so yeah, Irish law doesn't recognise surrogacy at all. Your mother is the woman who gave birth to you. That's the rule. Mm. And therefore you cannot at the moment transfer legal parenthood, i.e. the law's recognition that this person is your parent, to another woman. You can use other remedies within family law sometimes to like shore it up. Like you can have guardianship. Okay, so um, if you, so let's say I entered into a surrogacy arrangement with a woman and um, my husband provided the genetic material, was the legal father, was the genetic father. Then I could apply as his spouse or cohabitant after two years to be the guardian of my own child, my own genetic child. But I would not be recognised in law as that child's legal parent. There's also some theoretical use of adoption, but the Adoption Authority of Ireland hasn't been that keen on granting adoptions in this particular context so far because they're kind of waiting for more guidance from the Oireachtas and, and how to deal with it. Because there's, there's always a fear that some of these arrangements can be some kind of concealed child trafficking and require mm. further scrutiny. Yes, and of course. Uh, Sorry, Mark. There, are there issues down the line in relation to the rights of people to know their genetic parents as well? I mean, because we've heard that a lot in relation to illegal adoptions in the past. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder, is this something that is likely, uh, are, we, are we storing up the potential issue of people wanting to know who their genetic parents are? Well, the current proposals for a domestic regulation of surrogacy are very much ingrained the child's right to know who their genetic parents mm. are, to know everything about their surrogate mother and for this all to be put in a national register. And that is then how we will encourage people to use a domestic process because they will be streamlined through this. And at the end, uh, it should be easier for them to have legal parenthood either transferred to the intended yeah. mother, the woman who intends to be the child's mother. However, the reality is that international surrogacy is a thing, right? It's been happening for yes. decades now. And sort of the Irish state has to deal with that when it comes home, right? So it, mm. it doesn't have the ability to require other countries to keep this kind of information in the way that the state and would like. Do you think there's a lacuna in the legislation in relation to this area? 
Well, there's no legislation in this. Yeah, so there is a lacuna. Well, like, obviously, by very definition. Lacuna is generous. But, but does it need, does it, yeah, okay, but does it need to be addressed? I suppose it, yeah, that's what I'm asking about. It does need to be addressed. Yeah. And therefore, you know, there is a, there was a joint Oireachtas committee. There are bills before the Oireachtas about it at the moment. They're in committee stage and they have, you know, slightly different approaches to how they would approach a domestic surrogacy situation where the state theoretically has control over all the elements and what the state's obligation is in an international surrogacy arrangement. Because ultimately, if you're not going to recognise this, then you have a child in the country who may only have one parent uh, looking after them and the other person is not their parent. And then you're creating problems to do with the child's nationality later, particularly if they come from a country that recognises surrogacy, so they don't recognise the surrogate mother in that country as being the mother and transversing any any nationality. So there's a children's rights issue associated in recognising surrogacy as well as providing for the intentions of adults. Okay, and I think so, that really comes across in the chapter. Yeah. This, this So, so a lot more two. work to be done in this area. Yes. Absolutely. Um, and just, just kind of adoption, moving into adoption, Deirdre, and I don't know whether that's particularly your area, but I'm fascinated by this kind of Birth Information and Tracing Act 2022. You make references to that. And that is there to assist people kind of find out information. Um, How's yeah. that going to work? Yeah. So I suppose the, the thing about the adoption chapter is, yeah, we kind of move the adoption chapter around really because adoption is actually very rare these days and most adoptions are step-parent adoptions um, and are not like the adoption of small babies that we kind of have this idea in our head of what this is what adoption is are actually very rare. And so it's much more usually step-parent adoptions or people coming out of foster care into adoption is, is the most, most more common. So the kind of the hot topic, I guess, in adoption law at the minute is this attempt to resolution, resolve the really horrific <laughs> practices of the past um, where there are really uh, quite a lot of illegal adoptions and secret adoptions and, you know, people just can't get information. So the Birth Information Tracing Act is an attempt to deal with that. But a lot of the, I mean, there's a lot of obviously groups working on this have pointed out a lot of the shortcomings. Yes, so it it has to play out yet and see whether it it works. Yeah, so we have to see what's going. And I think there's also, I was just reading something recently that it's not really been adequately resourced and there's this then massive backlog yes. of requests going through TUSLA um, in order to access rec- records. So yeah, that that's we remain to be, to be seen how well that's going to work out and then if there's anything else we need to add to that to improve it. Great. Well, we have a timely uh, issue that we'd like to ask you about because within the next few days, the people of Ireland will be asked to vote in a referendum on the family and care And so you would appear to be about as expert as we can hope for uh, in relation to these issues. Can I ask you each, what what are your overall views on the proposals before the the people of Ireland in relation to the, um, the, the, the amendment on marriage? You go first, well, mate. Well, I think, I think uh, well, my views are already in the public domain, but I, in, th- in terms of the first one, the one on family, I think it's a really important change. Uh, it's been one of the idiosyncrasies of Irish family law that marriage has been, you know, such, on a, such a pedestal. It's mm. affected how we can legislate in other areas of family law to protect mm. the rights of cohabitants and protect the rights of children and their parents. So, so you think it's a positive change? I think it's really yeah. important, yeah. actually. Okay. I think, you know, when we look at Article 41 overall and how it was viewed in the 30s, you know, it was directly taken from cert- from papal encyclicals mm-hmm. about how contemporary Catholic teachings viewed marriage. Mm-hmm. And they viewed the family as the marital family and they viewed that marital family as having clear gender roles, right? With, yeah. the, with the father as the provider mm-hmm. and the mother as the care, caregiver and homemaker. And but, that was also mm-hmm. bolstered by the law that we inherited from the, Brit- from, mm-hmm. from the Brits, right? Mm-hmm. From the Victorian family law, which at that point... In the 30s, women did not have full legal capacity, married women. Uh, That didn't come until the Status of Women Act 1957. There was no real prospect of you having, you know, a full career outside the home. 
And it's really a statement that we're, we're not there anymore, right? We're in a new society now. We recognise that marriage is not the only way to have families. It's not mm. only the way that families are created and that women have a different role now in society. Can I, can I bring you back? Because the wording here is... We've all the, got our statements yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the, the state recognised the family before the amendment, recognises the family as the natural and primary fundamental unit group of society. I suppose where what I'm looking at, when, when you look at the change, you think, well, why does the family need to be the fundamental unit group of society? Surely each citizen is the unit group of society. And certainly I, you know, I was 15 years after I left my childhood family and before I married and started another family. I mean, you know, what, was, was I not part of any unit group of society during those, those years of, of, of long years of bachelordom? I mean, what is this unit group of society that we're talking about? Well, I suppose the wording in it is really to, um, at the time, to express the fact that the family is not a creation of law, right? It mm. predates law. People have been getting married for millennia. Um, so the, the kind of odd wording about it being a fundamental group of society is designed to reflect this idea that family has always been with us. Law mm. is merely recognising it rather than creating it. And, you know, they're really focused on marriage as being a sacrament at that point. Okay. And, uh, but, but isn't the issue, Maeve, I mean, people understand what marriage is. People mm-hmm. kind of do, do know what it is. Do they know what a durable relationship is? I think people do know what durable relationships are. Okay. And what does that mean to you? Durable relationships are all the other people you know in your life who aren't married. So the women who are single mothers, your uncle who married someone, got divorced and is now living with somebody else. You know, it, it's the variety of, of family life that exists on a day-to-day, a day-to-day normality in our society. So but, it's the granny looking after the kids that the mother can't look after. It's your Aunt Joan who's looking after somebody else's cousin. I mean, everybody knows people who are in these durable family relationships of extended care. So to, like, calling them durable relationships is new, but the idea that family exists in different forms and doesn't have to be created by marriage is not new to Irish society. It's built into it. And Deirdre, what do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would agree uh, mainly with Maeve. Um, and I think that it's important to kind of contextualise what is changing in terms of what, you know, what article, what the whole of Article 41 is about. Um, and it is about supporting families and recognising people's lives. Um, it's not necessarily about giving people rights based on their relationship, because that comes from, you know, legislation, you know, what, what you get as an instant of your relationship it, it does, is a legislative thing. It does say as a moral institution possessing inalienable yeah. and imprescriptible rights. So, I mean, clearly rights as, as, as a family are implied there. I mean, I suppose what concerns me slightly is that, you know, we've heard people saying, well, does this include polygamous and polyamorous relationships? Mm-hmm. And what has been said by various people in the media is, oh, well, that's for the courts to decide. But the first question the courts generally ask in relation to this is, what did the Irish people mean when they voted on it? Or what was their intention? And so it's a bit of a circular argument to, to put in a, a very loose phrase like other durable relationships and then say, oh, well, let's, let's hand it over to the Supreme Court because that's not really what they're there for, to, yeah. to, to find yeah. something that we, so, we don't even know what it means ourselves. So maybe we'll just take, mm-hmm. it, take, it, back. take, it, back, yeah, take yeah. it back a step. So... The, the, so the first part um, says, or will say, the state recognises the family, whether founded on marriage or other durable relationships as a natural, mm. primary and fundamental and all of that stuff. But then the next bit, which often people don't mention mm. in the context of the referendum, and I notice it's, it's left. It's not on the sheets. Actually. It's not on no. the sheets mm. and it's not on your little booklet. No, it is. Well, no, 41.1.2, mm. I think has been left out. Okay. And it says the state therefore guarantees to protect the family in its constitution and authority as a necessary basis of social order and is indispensable to the welfare of the nation and the state. Okay. So that's kind of statement a statement of 
what family means to the state. And it's that piece that, in fact, gives the family rights, but it's yes. the family as a group. Yeah. It's mm. not the individual members so of if the family. So if this referendum passes in relation to this, this is the 39th uh, proposed amendment to the Constitution, it will still all be about the family. It's just the family will, there'll be a broader view of what constitutes a family. A yes. slightly broader Isn't view. Isn't that it? Yes, yes. yes. And there's some uh, really nice focus on this uh, by the Chief Justice in a recent, it's actually uh, an immigration case called Gari around this. And he's kind of talking about the article designating a space within which the family can make decisions and has autonomy and authority. And so that really gives you a sense of, well, what is a family? A family is a, is a space within which people make their own decisions and within which the state has no role. And the Gary decision is really interesting because that is one where it was a family reunification case where um, a spouse who was not an Irish citizen were claiming that a right to cohabit with their Irish spouse in Ireland. And the court said, no, cohabitation is not one of the rights of the family under the constitution. You know, that 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 it's it's a right for the family as a group, but the Oireachtas can weigh that up against other needs yes. of the state, in this case, controlling immigration. So some of the arguments around, well, you know, you'll be able to bring in three wives. I mean, now you can't even bring in one wife, <laughs> you mm. know, so I think that, that that's really disingenuous. And the Gary decision is relatively recently. I mean, it's, it's 2020. And just because you're married to someone doesn't mean they get to come and live in the state. And May, from your point of view, I mean, do you see any any drawbacks? You know, Mark talks about uncertainty as a result of that. And, you know, the, you know, the parameters maybe aren't as defined as they were under the previous. But we know the world has changed and traditional views of marriage are very different now. So, mm-hmm. you know, I I think it's, it, it, it's reflective of, of, of a changing society. But what do you think? Have you any concerns about it? I think it's important to, when you're thinking about both articles or both uh, proposed referenda to separate the values from the potential legal effect, immediate legal effect. And we're talking about a very significant change in values, the opening up of the idea that, that families can exist in different ways. But when it comes to legal effect, the immediate legal effect of this, we've got to remember we have a whole family law, right? Mm. Which we've written a book about this legislation. Cohabitants mm. already have recognition under sure. the law. A kinship carers and uh, under inheritance, we recognise kins. We already have these ideas of family built into our legal system, but we don't recognise them as the family. We don't give them that kind of moral value to say that they're important to the state. So when we talk about the immediate effect of this, it does give the state space to make legislation about Mm. different types of relationships. And we have done that before, but we've always had to kind of do a lot of jiggery-pokery to make sure that marriage is always protected within Mm. that. To some extent, we're still going to have to do that because the Constitution still pledges itself to guard with special care the institution of marriage and protected against attack. And, I was a visions of devil air outside weddings with like weapons sure. to have ward people off when I read this. But, but, but what does that actually mean? I mean, once you've once you've changed the definition of the family to mm. to, to to broaden it from marriage, what other kind of attack on marriage are we talking about? Yeah, well, it's always interesting to consider these attacks on marriage. Mm. This is always the thing: if marriage is so great, why are yeah. people attacking it, yeah, yeah. and why is it so fragile? But I suppose the attack on marriage again, we have to think of Article Forty One as a whole. One of the attacks on marriage that it is envisioning is the idea of the introduction of divorce legislation, right? Mm. Because in 1937, that was the thing that distinguished us from godless England, right? Is that we didn't need divorce. We didn't have marital breakdown. This was the important nature Mm. of it. And we didn't want any of those values coming over here. So when we talk about it in legislation, it's been very narrowly defined really as treating marriage worse than Mm. other types of families. And worse when you consider 
all the benefits that attach to marriage. So in Nick Mahuna, we have these like a challenge to um, financial provisions for single mothers. They're like, well, these single mothers are doing really well. And then the court is saying, well, when we consider all the things, Mm. this is not treating marriage worse than being a single mother because rationally, while families are of equal value, uh, you know, there are different circumstances and their rights can be realised differently. And that will be a place for the courts and that will be a place for legislation. I mean, I do find myself wondering what what value does marriage still have in circumstances? And I mean, I don't don't mean this in a pejorative way, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I think now something like 40% of children are born outside of wedlock. I mean, I thought that sounds quite high, but then I was looking at a table which shows that actually we're about average in European terms. And I think a lot of Scandinavian countries, maybe more than half of children are born outside of wedlock. But you do start to wonder, well, is there any particular reason to have a legal basis of marriage? Because, you know, in circumstances where it's, it simply isn't the default circumstance, what does it give us? Is it not, a simple, yeah, is it not it as simple as a case where, you know, a family where the, the, the parents, let's say, for want of a better phrase, are not married. I mean, we would all accept that they're actually a family mark. Do you know what I mean? Well, that's we, what I mean. Where does the legal well, state of marriage well, well, the focus stand? is still on the family. It is. The focus the point, is still on the family. The point is that marriage is an easy way for the state to identify you. Mm. Um, you know, because people can cohabit it and actively decide not to get married mm. for whatever which reason. Which is often the case. Which is mm. often the case. Well, more often people just don't get around to or, getting married. Or, or, or people don't get around to it. Cohabitants don't all yeah. think alike. Yeah. They don't. Yeah. So everybody <laughs> is, is different. But the... Yeah. I think we all accept that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, the thing is that marriage does, you know, it is an easy way for the state to identify who's married. Um, and there are, you know, who is that, that in That sounds a, a bit big brotherish, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've written a whole thesis about this. But yeah, I mean, it is it is a kind of a, from the state's point of view, I mean, if you think of it, they would probably prefer if you got married because then they don't have to think about all these Order really difficult relationships, you so, know. So, and, and yeah. there are advantages. I mean, you know, there are tax um, advantages uh, to being married that, you know, mm. don't come at the minute with other relationships. And also when it breaks up, you have to get divorced, you have to go to court, the court Mm. has to stand over the financial remedies that are done. None of these things happen with cohabitation. Again, you make marriage sound like more of a burden than a blessing. No, but it's a blessing. I mean, you get get to have a court look and make sure that proper Mm. provision, which is not a bit of the constitution that's changing, is made for dependents and spouses when a marriage breaks up. And that's the difference between cohabitation is it's just much less certain. Um, Mm. We don't know when it starts particularly. You know, it can end... Uh, the level of commitment is not necessarily the same mm. in all cohabiting relationships. And that's why when we look at the cases that have happened under the Cohabiting Act, they're quite intrusive. Like people have looked at every aspect mm. of these people's relationships to see if they are committed. Yeah. So Maeve, what I'm hearing from you is you don't think society will fall apart if this, if this referendum is passed. Can I no. ask you about the second referendum? The second referendum. The woman in the home. It's kind of, that's kind of what it's, what it's suggested. There's, there's one complicated form of wording being replaced by another complicated form of wording. Mark has his, his, his leaflet here if he wants to read it out. Go on, tell us about the, this, the 40th proposed amendment to the Constitution. What are your views on that? Well, again, we have Article uh, 41.2, which will we read it? I mean, I think the yeah, wording is do, quite please shocking. please do. I just don't have it in front um, of me. In particular, the state recognises that by her life within the home, woman gives to the state a support without which the common good cannot be achieved. Two, the state shall therefore endeavour to ensure that mothers shall not be obliged by economic necessity to engage in labour to the neglect of their duties in the home. So this article reflects the social function of women in the 1930s. And if we look at de Valera speaking about this article at the time, he uses the word woman and mother interchangeably. They're linked, that, that is sure. the understood and accepted social role for the mothers. So we're, we're trying to move away from that. So we're trying to move to a, an article that says, when we talk about 
the work that happens in the home. That's something that can, should and is done by people of all genders. And it's not just done by women. So when you look at the Constitution at the whole and Julie Morrissey, who's a poet, I'm going to recommend her work later. She's done a great poem about positions gendered male in Bunrock the Heron. So there are only seven mentions of women in Bunrock the Heron. And the rest of them is presumed to be men, right? So these are all these roles that would be presumed to be men. And then we think about the women, we have Article 40, we've got their place in the home. And what we're moving towards now is a society where we accept that women are available in all other spheres of society, that the rest of the constitution are roles that women could inhabit. So, there's not, so we're not relegating women to Article 40 and therefore we're, we're including care as something that can be done by men and women. Well, the easiest approach not have been just to get rid of this provision altogether out of the constitution so, and not try and replace it with this kind of complex sort of notion that people have to get their heads around. Yeah, I mean, yes, but one use that the article does have, and come back to my reading far too many divorce cases, is in divorce and judicial separation. And it has been used by the courts in judicial and separation, judicial separation and divorce cases to acknowledge the equal value of income earning work as opposed to the care work that a dependent spouse might do in the home. Uh, and so if it were just removed, I think somebody must have been looking at the judicial separation and divorce cases. Well, then where would that foundation for that equal recognition come from? Because the divorce legislation refers to taking into account this care work but it doesn't say what weight should be attached to it. Whereas, you know, this provision has allowed some weight to be attached to it. Now, it's applied by the divorce courts in a gender neutral way. It's applied to both dependent men mm. and dependent women. So in effect, what the new thing is doing is basically doing what the courts are already doing. Yeah, I suppose what, what, what strikes me is that the, the article, what it specifically says is that it is, it is the state that she'll endeavour to ensure that mothers shall not be obliged by economic necessity to engage in labour to the neglect of their duties in the home. And if that had ever been put into practice, if the state was actually saying, right, mothers who wish to stay at home to look after the young children, I mean, I don't know if you can, but, you know, if there was an actual active policy to support women who choose to stay in the home to bring up younger children, for example, and now we were voting to take that away, people would be up in arms. I mean, the, the, you know, the fact that this has never actually been sort of put into place seems to be the issue. Well, and you're talking about cases where it's actually the, the, the family funds that's being dealt with in terms of supporting, the, whereas this, is, this yeah. very specifically refers to the state, doesn't it? Um, yes, but, but that's not how it's been interpreted and the state hmm. has never done that. And you can be sure that if the state had put something in, was providing mothers, mm. uh, there would absolutely have been an equality claim by a father carrying out that role to say, well, I'm looking after the children. I'm carrying out the same social role. Well, sure. I think I should also get the same payment. Mm. Yeah. Although the constitution wouldn't protect him. So, but yeah. But I think, yeah, sure. but I think that, mm. the, no, no, this, the yeah, yeah, and yeah. the Supreme mm. Court has interpreted that provision, has said that this is dated and has said that mm. it's about care. Uh, and does recognise it being carried out by both men and women. Do you, do you see any negative aspect to this, Maeve? I presume you're in favour of, of this amendment as well. Or how do you view that? It is kind of complicated, I think. Yeah, Slightly more think, complicated than the last one. I think everyone would agree that it's it's not the wording that people were looking for. And, and simpler wordings were put forward and broader wordings recognising care in the wider community were put forward. And that wasn't the wording that the government has run with. But I think it's hugely significant that we're going to 
you know, we had a constitution that recognised a particular patriarchal form of the family, right? If you, if you, if you, use, if you look at Article 41 as a whole, mm. but what was interesting about it was that it did recognise that what women did in the home was valuable. So to take that out completely and not recognise that the day-to-day care, love and affection that happens in families is uh, not have any recognition of that, not have any recognition of the reproductive labour that is done in homes, would actually be taking away some of the um, values of our country and what we recognise as being important. So from a value point of view, I think it's important that care is recognised in the constitution. I think it's important that it's called care and not mm. some kind of strange duties done by women. Oh, yeah. I mean, not not everything should fall to the mammies. Mm. Well, well, you say that, but <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know how you analyse the statistic, but I, I saw the other day that they that it's estimated that something like 98% of work in the home is done by women. Now, I, I, yes, like uh, I say, no, I don't know I mean, how you assess that, but, you're, but you're certainly not it's not, you're it's not, not wrong. It's uh, not entirely misplaced this notion that that women give the state some unpaid service, should we say. Absolutely. But it's about setting values for modern Ireland. Yeah. So it is a truth that women do much of the caregiving labour. It's complicated the reasons why that happens. But part of it is because it's viewed as the correct work for women. So this is again stepping away from that and saying that we should all be helping out in all spheres, that this is important work to our society that should be done by men and women. Okay. Folks, we're, 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 we're well into uh, additional time here. This has been fascinating. And I think you've both set out your cases very, very well. I think, Mark, in fairness, you've, you've played devil's advocate here and you've thrown a little bit into the mix because we Thank want you. to be balanced out there. Obviously, people who listen to this show might take a view either way. So uh, we wish everybody well. Just go out and vote. It's so important that people go out and express their, you know, exercise their franchise in relation to these matters. Okay, before we go, Deirdre, we have a question we always ask. Book or movie you would like to recommend to our listeners? Okay, so on the book, I'm going to go with the Northern Irish Feminist Judgments Project, uh, which I think... Northern slash Irish. Northern, yeah, yeah, so which both myself and me have actually contributed to, uh, but it's a a much larger book. There are lots of contributors. But uh, the reason for that is just, it's basically what has happened is that there's a rewriting of judgments. So judgments that have been given by the Irish courts, North and South, and they've been rewritten uh, from you know, largely feminist perspective. So, it, it, but it's just a different way of thinking. They've rewritten the judgments? They've rewritten kind of the analyzed, judgments. Right, okay. Yeah. As and then there's, the judge. as if there was a feminist judge, basically. And then there's a little commentary that goes along okay. with it. Um, and there's one in particular um, that is a rewriting of the uh, the Kerry Babies Inquiry report. Okay. Uh, that I have to say is absolutely... That would be very different from a female perspective. Yeah, Absolutely. And I think it really brings home how how different you can think about things with the same facts given the same context. And I might mention it's actually written by the, uh, the late uh, and great Vicky Conway. And so then in terms of a movie, I'm not going to go with a movie because I'm not really a movie person. I can't sit through a movie. But there is a TV show called Fisk that's on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen it. No, I haven't. But it's about an Australian corporate lawyer who um, falls into distribute and goes and has to work in a small suburban law firm. But I have to say, it gets a small suburban law firm down to a T. Uh, wow. And it's really, okay, that's yeah, one to really watch. very one to smart. Watch. Yeah, very good. Okay, thank you for that, Deirdre. And Maeve, go on, give us um, a book. Well, on the give long context front, I am recommending, I love to know the background to cases and what happened afterwards. So this is an excellent book by a historian, David Jameson, about the Tilson case, uh, Church and State in 1950s Ireland. And it, it really brings out the context of that case, the human Remind element. You, the Tilson you tell case us about the Tilson uh, case. So the Tilson case is very famous in that we had the Protestant father, the Catholic mother, the Protestant father had promised... 
Yeah, yeah, promised to raise his. Well, it's not Feather and Sea, no, but Feather and Sea is mentioned in this. It's yeah. actually, um, it, yeah, there's, there's a number of locations, but it's. Yeah. It, I know what you're thinking of, and that's mentioned in the book. Right. They're not based in Feather and Sea. Um, yeah. He promises to raise his children as Catholics, um, so that he can marry in the Catholic Church to his pregnant wife. And then um, they they fall on hard times. They have marital difficulties. He takes the kids and places them in a Protestant orphanage, and the case comes to the courts. And the court comes to the very radical position based on Article 42, which thankfully we're not talking about today. But men and women have equal rights, decision-making rights as parents, yeah. which is actually quite progressive at the time. They're quite far away from uh, where England was. But it's shrouded in religious religiosity, right? So because it's effectively giving effect to this promise that he made to raise his children as Catholics. And uh, on both sides, the Church of Ireland, Protestant orphanage people are involved the Catholic Church is involved, McQuaid is involved. And these two people and their family, they find themselves embroiled in this huge national polemic. But what's really interesting, I'm not spoiling the book, is they actually get back together at the end and they live happily for many years in England. So I wasn't really expecting that, but it's excellent. And it really does look sounds, at all the different like aspects of it. That's, that, that might be a little focus for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've given us an idea. Yeah, there you no, go. That sounds fantastic. And then the last thing I wanted to mention was not a film, but an exhibition that's happening in Mali called Is This yeah, a Poem? Adventures uh, on the Age of Art Form. And it features some legal poems that are based on legal works. So Julie Morrissey's Positions Gendered Male in Bunrock the Heron and Kimberly Campernello's work based on the Mother and Baby Homes report. And it's on in Molly now for the next six six months. If Where's people Molly? Want to win. Museum of Literature Ireland. It's on Stephen's Green. Oh, Green. wow. Okay, there you go. All right. Well, look, they're both fabulous recommendations. Deirdre McGowan and Maeve Harding, thank you so much for coming in and being guests on The Fifth Court. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can I say a huge thank you to our guests today, Dr Deirdre McGowan from TUD Dublin and Dr Maeve Harding from UCD for coming in and talking to us primarily about their book, but also about the referenda. Mark, what a great discussion that was. Well, I I hope it illuminates some of our listeners uh, and... um and helps them to decide which way to vote because uh, it's been quite it's, it's been a, a strangely one. controversial a referendum one, think, because you know? yeah I mean I think everybody always assumed the language is outdated and then a lot of people in the media are saying well actually what they're putting what they're proposing isn't necessarily an improvement so yeah well I I hope what was discussed on the show here was very informative but I would say to people go out and vote it's so important that people vote okay before we go I would also like to say a big thank you to our producer Cunnel O'Moroin and to Lee Brennan of the Dublin South Podcast Studios for their wonderful work in recording this show uh, so from me Peter Leonard myself Mark Tottenham thank you for listening and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.